You don't have to be a rocket scientist to help realize a mission to Mars. Become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc. You don't need to be a bioengineer to help change the shape of humanity. Become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Welcome to Trillions. I'm Joel Weber. And I'm Eric Balchunas. Eric, you're back from the beach. I survived. I can see you via uh, our Zoom, and you look like you've got some sun on your face. Congratulations. I'm still white and pasty. <laughs> I needed that. Um, but the planes were half empty. Everybody was wearing masks. They apparently scrub them down, and uh, it was great. We had a good time. I feel great. And uh, my dad was happy to see us. So, Eric, we've been doing this podcast for two and a half years together, I think. Uh, we've had a lot of great guests, but I think today's guest might be the best guest we've had. Yeah, uh, d- definitely up there. Uh, this is uh, really exciting for me because a lot of the issues we talk about over the past two and a half years are typically stuff that become media stories. You know, are ETFs trading at discounts? Um, what about the XIV story? You know, Who owned that? All of these issues are issues that make it to the forefront tend to be issues that the SEC has to look at, which is me foreshadowing who the guest is. But there's a lot of times we'll say, we wonder what the SEC thinks about this. And so now we have an opportunity to get that perspective. Well, I misspoke slightly because we actually have two guests. In addition to someone from the SEC, who we'll introduce in just a second, we also have a Bloomberg intelligence analyst who covers regulation joining us, Nathan Dean. Hi, Nathan. Hi, how you doing? Thanks for having me. I'm going to give you the I'm going to give you the drum roll because you are actually the person who helped make this happen. So, Nathan, who's our guest today? Our guest today is uh, SEC Commissioner Hester Peirce, also known as Crypto Mom to many people in the Bitcoin community. And it's just an absolute honor uh, to have her. And thank you for allowing me to come on and ask a few questions myself. Uh, This is going to be a wonderful discussion. Nate and I work in Bloomberg Intelligence, and we cross paths, I don't know, once every two months. He'll write about something with the SEC that deals with ETFs. And um, so we've gotten to know each other pretty well. And uh, I think also when you said Crypto Mom, that's how I got introduced to Commissioner, because when the Bitcoin ETF wasn't approved, she was uh, on the side of uh, dissenting from that. And that's how I got to know her. But then I've read a lot of her speeches, and I find myself very in tune with her takes, so I'm really excited about this. This time on Trillions, SEC Commissioner Hester Peirce. Commissioner, welcome to Trillions. I'm delighted to be here. I do have to start with two disclaimers. One, I'm sure I will not be the best guest you've ever had, and two, um, the views that I represent are my own views and not necessarily those of the SEC or my fellow commissioners. Okay, what are your views on banana bread versus sourdough during the pandemic? Banana bread is good, but it has to have chocolate chips in it, and then it's better than sourdough. Oh, Oh, that's a pro tip right there. Um, Okay, so down to business. You noted in a recent speech that ETFs were in the portfolio of 7.8 million Americans, and that number even comes from a couple years ago, um, and that they're gaining even more share. How big do you see them getting, and, and what do you guys at the SEC watch out for? Well, it's hard for me to anticipate how big they'll get. I think they'll 
see more and more, a, fi- a fixture of more and more Americans' portfolios. And I, I can't see them declining in, in, in importance. I think they'll grow in importance. Um, in terms of what we watch for, you know, I think now that there's such an important fixture, that also means that there's something that we have to pay attention to from a, an investor protection um, and, and market stability perspective. I think we look, we look at them from both of those perspectives. One of the things, before we get into market stability and some of the exotic products, um, when we talk about the rise of ETFs and passive, I track Vanguard and BlackRock a lot, and I'm just amazed at how much they take in. They almost take in like all the money. And almost all the money is going to passive. And so there's some people who get concerned that, you know, BlackRock and Vanguard, as passive gets big, bigger and that money's concentrated, are going to own too much of America's companies. I mean, I think right now the rule is a fund can't own more than 10%. And I think Vanguard's biggest fund has maybe 2.5% of Apple. So they have a lot of room to grow. But that would mean Vanguard could own 25, 30% of a stock. Do you guys look at that? Is it possible that there might be a regulation to sort of, limit how much a company can own of a stock? Because right now, I think between BlackRock and Vanguard, they own about 15% of most companies. Well, I think it is important to distinguish between uh, Vanguard and or BlackRock asset managers and the, the particular funds that they advise, because it's actually the fund that's the owner. And the funds are managed separately. So they're not, each fund has its own objectives. So it's, they're not all managed um, in lockstep. And, and that means that you can't really say, okay, let's just look at everything that one large asset manager has and, and just attribute that to the large asset manager itself. Um, you have to look more at a, at a more granular level to see which fund owns what. Now that said, as you pointed out, some funds do have quite a big percentage and that is something that's that's a new phenomenon i'm not entirely new but it's a, it's a growing phenomenon and so i think it's something that that everyone watches that said there's a lot of concern about passive investing and and my theory is that if passive investing it grows then there is definitely going to be room for active investors to make a lot of money if everyone is passive the few people who aren't will be able to to uh, do quite well. So I don't think that this means the end of active, and I don't think it means that um, markets can't function. So, Commissioner, I'd like to ask a question from the regulatory point of view. You know, last September, the SEC finalized its ETF modernization framework uh, rule, um, you know, which in part aims to facilitate greater competition and innovation. You know, to our audience and our audience are generalists, what are the main takeaways for investors to know? Uh, and do you think more work needs to be done uh, in terms of this, just the overall ETF framework? I think the main takeaway from that rule is that we finally sat down, put pen to paper and said, all right, let's take the collective experience that we've had over the past nearly three decades um, and let's, let's put that into a formal rule. Up until that point, the way ETFs got approved was through an exemptive application process, which is a lengthy um, process and an expensive process and means that 
um, we were basically doing one-off approvals. And that just doesn't make sense for something as established as ETF. So there had been attempts before um, in, in, I think, 2008, there was an attempt to do a rule in this space, but obviously got overtaken by events. So the fact that we were able to get a rule out, I think, is, is just good for predictability, rule of law reasons. You want to have a general framework that everyone relies on. You want everyone's conditions to be the same. Um, and so, so it provided some regularity. And I think that's a great start. What it means is that it frees up our staff resources to spend time on more um, unusual ETFs, the ones that you would want us to spend a little bit more time thinking about. Uh, and so that was that was a, a side benefit of the rule, just having having more staff time to think about some of these unusual products that, or more unusual products that people have come to us um, and asked if they could bring to market. Do I think that we could do more on the on the rule? Could we extend it? Yes, I think we could have included leveraged and inverse ETFs in the rule. We we chose not to, so I think there will be room for us to to add some more regularity to the ETF market in the future once we've had more experience with different kinds of ETFs. Um, that's a great segue. Uh, the unusual part because uh, I wanted to get into some of the. Some of the more juicy topics here, namely uh, the exotic products, like you mentioned, uh, we just saw USO was the latest, you know, teachable moment, I call them, where people might not have understood what was happening or how futures get rolled. Before that, it was XIV. Leverage ETFs was like five years ago. These kind of exotic pro products crop up now and then, and then BlackRock will propose these acronyms that they'll be able to met, like ETI or ETP, like a labeling system to keep plain vanilla away from the exotic stuff. We've proposed the, what we call a traffic light, which is like movie ratings. And, you know, if it has uh, leverage or rolls futures, it would get a red light and we would just show you quickly why it got the red light. But this is a real tough nut to crack because not all ETFs are Boy Scouts and not all ETNs or ETPs are that bad. And I think there's a lot of moving parts here. What's your take on how to allow for innovation in the exotic areas while protecting the innocent? Well, I think it's a good question and something that we think about all the time, but we do think about it from the perspective of not being a merit regulator. We're not. So we're not looking at products as they come through and saying, yeah, this one will be good for investors, this one not good. Um, so we allow the one that, that we think will be good and we disallow the one that that we just dis, dis, disapprove the one that will not be good. Instead, what we do is we say, is the disclosure that the fund is going to use going to tell investors what they need to know in order to understand whether this product will work in their portfolios or will work as a tool in their investment strategy? And so that is really where our focus needs to be. And, and from my perspective, um, we have had some success in this area in, in making sure that the disclosure is quite clear. Uh, and I think sometimes people do have these teachable moments, as you said, and, and you know, they can be really bad events. And so I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to downplay them, but I, I do think it's, it's good for people to read the disclosure and then think about how, how they'll, things will play out. 
and not assume just because things have been going one way for a very long time that they're going to keep going that way. We've seen in recent months some real some really big changes in our markets, obviously. And that means that products that worked one way for a long time may work in a very different way during that change time. And so um, even very sophisticated investors who were using strategies um, that they thought worked really well found themselves in a bit of a difficult situation in recent months when things changed dramatically. And so it's a good lesson for all of us. You have to think not only of what the markets look like today, but of how things might change in the future. And, and you have to protect yourself um, and, and, and think, think ahead and protect yourself for circumstances that might look very different than what you're experiencing now. Um, so we all learn in, in market events like, like the, the ones that we've had in recent months. That makes total sense. I, I guess the only thing that I found in there that I f- would feel would might get a little pushback is reading the disclosures. I think there's just a unfortunate reality that people just don't read the documents that much. Um, so the, hence, the, you know, my take is a need for maybe some kind of outside third-party objective rating system like movies or something that gives you the information quickly so that you don't have to go and dig through the prospectus or or do you think just maybe trying to just urge people to read the prospectus or put the information higher up in the documents? Um, what's your take on that, like, apathy of reading the documents? Well, that certainly is is a phenomenon that we see, and, and it's an understandable one. I mean, the, the disclosures that we have, frankly, uh, for, for all investment products are ones that are really difficult to read. Um, we are working on that in, in various ways. We recently in connection with with a new regulation for broker dealers and investment advisors we put out um, a requirement that there be a short form disclosure which we hope will be effective i've been pushing specifically for for allowing firms to use technology to better communicate with investors because i think lots of investors who might not be inclined to read a disclosure statement might well listen to it on a podcast, watch it on a video, uh, work with it through an interactive app on their phone. And so a lot of firms really are interested in offering these kinds of things to to investors, but the rules, the way they're written now, make that really hard to do. Um, What can we do to allow um, populations that speak different language than English to get disclosures in a language that works for them? So we can be more creative on that front, but even if we we do a better job in that area, I think you're right that there are going to be a lot of people who still are looking to third parties for guidance about what they should what they should buy and what they should avoid. And I don't think a rating system is a bad idea, I, especially if it's something that's done designed by the private sector. I mean, if I'm going to buy a, a refrigerator. I don't know a lot about refrigerators. I don't purchase them very often. And so I'm going to look up some sort of third-party advice on which ones are good and which ones aren't. And I'm going to run that search based on what my particular needs are. And so I think those kinds of third-party rating systems can be very valuable. 
Commissioner, I have to ask if you've ever heard of Eric's traffic light system prior to him pitching it to you during this podcast. <laughs> well, I'm sorry that I haven't, but I think it's an interesting idea. Um, Commissioner, I want to ask you about uh, another area of interest right now, which is uh, ESG ETFs. Um, Eric is sort of a hater in that world, um, and he, you know he thinks thinks that, uh, that well we've we've covered that before. But you've spoken out, um, I believe, on on how the labels of ESG ETFs can also be misleading. What are, what are your specific concerns there? Well, I think I'm not the only one to raise concerns about greenwashing, um, which essentially means that you say, oh well, everyone wants wants ESG now in their in their portfolio, so we'll just slap the ESG label on and we'll just keep doing whatever it is we were doing before. And that may be fine. I mean, maybe what you were doing before was ESG. ESG is such a broad set of um, characteristics. So again, going back to what I said before, what what people need to do, what, what companies need to do when they offer these products is they need to explain what they mean by ESG for that particular product. And, and be very clear about that and then allow investors who care about those things to, to pick the ESG product that works for them for whatever purpose they're trying to achieve. I mean, I think there, there is a lot of attention on whether or not ESG is good for returns or not. And, and again, because we don't really have a consistent view of what ESG means, you can't really say across the board, yes, it's good to have an ESG portfolio. It's going to increase your return. Um, and, and some people are willing to sacrifice returns in order to achieve some other objective. So again, I think it's really important that, um, that the companies offering these products are very clear on whether you will be sacrificing return or whether they believe that, that the ESG uh, characteristics are consistent with with achieving the highest return consistent with that strategy. This podcast is brought to you by Invesco QQQ. What do all the greatest innovations have in common? Agents, people who participate in progress by supporting cutting-edge ideas. Invesco QQQ is a fund that allows you access to innovators of the NASDAQ 100 all-in-one fund so you don't have to be an inventor to help create what's next to come. Anyone can become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. There are risks when investing in ETFs, including possible loss of money. ETF risks are similar to those of stocks. Investments in the tech sector are subject to greater risk and more volatility than more diversified investments. The NASDAQ 100 Index comprises the 100 largest non-financial companies on the NASDAQ. You can't invest directly into an index. Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit Invesco.com for a prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully before investing. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Let's shift because I, I don't want to lose some of these other topics here. Um, obviously, Bitcoin, this is uh, uh, how I got to hear of you when you wrote that dissent. Um, I was just sort of note about Bitcoin ETFs in the world or the ETPs in the world. There's now 25 different funds across the world. The one in Sweden that's an ETN has been around for five years now. And the, the premiums on the ones that are ETPs are very small. You can tell the creation redemption process is working fine. Then you go to the U.S. and you have GBTC, which is a private trust that trades over the counter. So 
that can trade up to at premiums of up to 25 to 50 percent and that's got a couple billion at this point so i made the case that they should approve it a to give gbtc people a better shot at a fair price and b because europe has shown that it the creation redemption process works great what's your latest on where we are with this well recently i issued a second uh, dissent saying to me it appears that the that the current commission is not interested in approving any exchange traded product that's available to, to a, a retail audience that has crypto underlying. Um, so I'm not, I, I tend to be fairly optimistic about lots of things. So I hope that, that this point of view will change, but the analysis that we've applied in, in preventing these products from trading in the United States is a uniquely tailored analysis that we only seem to use for these kinds of products, which suggests to me that we have one standard for crypto products and another standard for other types of products. And I don't think that's right. And but when you talk about this and they say they don't want to have an exchange listed product, do they consider the GBTC situation? Because it's, it's big. I mean, and let's say you bought it at a 50% premium and the premium just happens to drop 25%, but Bitcoin went up, you actually lost money even though the underlying went up. No, I think that's a great point. And I think it's, it's, I mean, I don't want to speak about any product and I haven't tracked that product the way that you have, but I think that in general, the reason that products that trade on exchanges are attractive is because they, they do offer this, this really good price discovery process and they, they work really, really well. And so that's why people um, like to, to trade products on exchanges I and mean, there's value there. So, so I think it's, it's something that, um, that we should consider, but what, what I've seen among folks at the SEC is that there's a real concern to allow any kind of product that will be easily accessible to retail investors. And I do think it's a bit of a, of, of a merit regulation perspective. Um, I think it's, it's the conclusion that they don't think it's, it's something that, that retail folks should be, should be engaged with. And my response to that is, well, there's retail and institutional interest in crypto. Whether that's good or bad, that's not really our place to decide. But if we don't allow people to, to get access through our regulated securities markets, they'll get access in other ways. And that's, that's fine, um, of course. But, but I think what my colleagues would say is, well, all right, then if there are problems, and again, I shouldn't, as I started out the podcast, I'm not speaking for my colleagues. But to me, that, that suggests that if there are problems, then we don't have to take responsibility for them. And that isn't a, a really good um, rationale for a regulator to deny a product um, to, to trade in our market. Yeah, just, just along those lines, Commissioner, you know, Crypto Dad, former CFTC chairman Christopher Giancarlo has left. Your term is up in June. And, you know, obviously, I think everybody's aware commissioners can serve beyond their term dates. But when you eventually leave the commission, should the Bitcoin community be concerned that there's not somebody on the regulatory side that would be pushing or a champion for cryptocurrency? You know, is, the, is there going to be a void there? 
So I don't view myself as a champion for cryptocurrency. What I do view my role as is saying, look, innovation brings good things to society. It doesn't mean that every innovation is a good thing. It just means that the job of a regulator is not to stand in the way of innovation. It's to set up a regulatory framework that is flexible enough to accommodate innovation. And I think there there are many people, both at the SEC and at the CFTC, um, which is which is our fellow capital markets regulator, who are very interested in seeing innovation move forward and figuring out frameworks that will work well for innovation. And I've always said that you know whether or not any particular commissioner is at the commission is sort of irrelevant. What you're trying to do is you're trying to build institutions that that succeed apart from whether any particular person is there or not. I, I think that that it is good to push the SEC to rethink its approach to innovation, and, and I will continue to do that as long as I'm there. But there are others at the SEC who feel the same way as I do, um, both on the commission and on the staff. Commissioner, I'd like to ask you about um, bond ETFs, which have been been a concern of late because um, some have traded at discounts to their NAVs, and this always kind of raises concerns. How much does the SEC see that NAV issue um, being stale um, versus a, being more of a plumbing problem with ETFs? Well, I think that there are going to be a lot of things that we look at coming out of this period because it's been such a unique uh, it's been a unique period in the markets, and it's it's offered us a lot of interesting things that we can look at. And among those are are going to be how ETFs functioned during this period. Um, you know, one suggestion is that the ETF pricing actually allowed us to see more quickly where the bond prices would go ultimately, and so. Um, may not be that the the discount was inappropriate, right? That's one theory that I've heard. So I think we we have to wait until we have the the calmness that we need to be able to go back and look at these things. But but certainly on the whole, I think ETFs function quite well during the past several months. And um I think probably were, were uh, on the whole, helpful to the functioning of markets. And just to follow up on that, um, you know, one thing I saw the SEC put forth, I don't know if it was in your neck of the woods or not, but we as ETF analysts are constantly having to defend ETFs from like myths and accusations and attacks. One of the ones, everybody saw the bond ETF trading way below the NAV, and then there was this other case that mutual fund NAVs were being put out that were arguably stale and fake. And it made the mutual fund look like it was better than, so to speak, the ETF, which was, quote, broken. But the mutual fund wasn't it really operating in that, in that sort of illiquidity hell, as I call it, quite yet. But then outflows started, and we think they were probably going to have to – so the Fed stepped in just in time. We didn't get to see the experiment play out. But l- largely – I think the SEC noticed what we noticed, which is NAVs for bonds in a crisis tend to be just a little off because they're using uh, old pricing. Do you think that mutual funds and the and the pricing services should look for ways to, uh, I don't know, triangulate or update the pricing of the NAVs uh, 
so that it is a little more reflective of, of where the ETF is uh, and the reality of, of that uh, illiquidity movement? Well, I, I think valuation during a time like this is extremely difficult. And I think we could do a better job as an agency, um, which we're, we're trying to work on, of providing guidance about how to how to do valuation and, and how to think about it at times when it's really difficult to figure out what the what what the underlying bonds are, are trading at because there's there's so much dislocation in the underlying markets. Um, so that's that's never going to be an easy thing, and and so I, I don't I don't know that we're going to have a silver bullet um, to solve it, but I think we're trying to trying to give give funds a better sense of of how to approach the problem. I want to shift to marketing a little bit, uh, Commissioner, because marketing is a big part of the ETF industry. And one of the ETFs that never got out, and I was just curious, you can tell from the names of ETFs, like the Trade War ETF, uh, there's a work from home ETF coming out. There was, they keep getting closer and closer to straight out celebrity endorsements, I think. And there was one filed uh, a couple years ago called the Quincy Jones Music Streaming ETF. It was pretty plain vanilla, held like, you know, stocks that were in the music streaming economy, plain vanilla theme ETF. But the name Quincy Jones, I think, had some caution. Then the prospectus was refiled, and you could see that they changed some things based on comments, but it still never made it to market. Before you answer, I want Nate wants to provide a little more color, and then we'll get your take. Yeah, it was just, I mean, the same thing was happening in the initial coin offering space, you know, with Floyd Mayweather and DJ Khalid, uh, and with their their interactions with the SEC. So I, I think our question is, is that, you know, is, as the SEC looks at these products that are coming out with celebrity endorsements, you know, is there a higher standard or even in this era of COVID where, uh, you know, where people aren't as, you know, in tune with um, their day-to-day activities, I guess to say, you know, is the SEC taking a different approach or is it the same approach? I mean, could you just provide some more color on that? Well, I think we always worry about people being taken in by, by marketing that may not be um, in, in that may not be consistent with the underlying product. So that's something that we're always looking at. Uh, during this COVID time, we are paying attention to anything that's COVID related because frankly, just, you know, it's like the, now it's the three C's, it's cannabis, crypto, and COVID where people are using those terms to rip people off. That doesn't mean that every product that involves those things is a fraud, but we certainly pay attention because people are opportunistic and they will use whatever whatever mechanisms they can to try to take advantage of people. And we do hold people responsible who tout a product um, if if they're they're touting it and they're they're making money from touting the product and saying things that aren't accurate. Uh, again, I'm not speaking to any particular celebrity endorsement, but we do hold people responsible, and I think we've made it very clear that we do that. And people in the industry realize that we have fairly tight guidelines on on um, how people market things. So there there's not a lot of um, room, I think, for legitimate players to use illegitimate means and, and get away with it for marketing things. Again, I'm not speaking about any of the products, the specific products you mentioned. 
But at the same time, I don't think there's anything wrong with coming up with a marketing plan for your for your product to reach an audience that will will um, find that product to be useful or or interesting or something that they want to buy. So, you know, one of the things I wanted to ask you about, Commissioner, was ETFs debuted back in 1993. I read one of your speeches. Uh, you had um, a, a niece, I think, that was born then. So you watched your niece basically grow up at the same kind of time frame that the ETFs have sort of um, grown and developed. Um, and, I, you know, I don't know if you knew this, but Eric and I have done a little bit of a histor- history lesson on ETFs and written about them and did a whole podcast about it. But one of the things that we've learned about that is that the initial idea for the ETF actually came out of the SEC, which looked at Black Monday of 1987 and said, wow, it'd be great if there was a, a, back, a market basket-like instrument that could help buffer liquidity, um, which we always thought was sort of amazing that the SEC basically helped spawn the ETF industry. When you kind of think about all of this and in, in how ETFs have evolved what is it about ETFs? Like, where does the magic come from, do you think? I think it comes from the fact that it really recognizes um, the the way that markets work. And the, the um, it, it, it allows us to take advantage of the way the arbitrage mechanism works in a way that's really beneficial for, um, and again, I'm not speaking about any particular product, but I think retail investors have really benefited from these products. Um, because it just puts the market mechanisms to work for them, and I, I think it's a good it's a good lesson for us at the SEC to remember that while innovation can seem scary, um, ultimately it can end up, you know, really benefiting a lot of people. And and now that we have all of this new technology that allows us to do things that were un, unimaginable in the past and allows us to do better data analysis, not us as the SEC, but us as, as humans, everyone has something con- to contribute to the market. Um, whether it's that person's knowledge, experience, preferences, all of those things feed into the market mechanism and produce um, prices, and those prices are information. And so it's exciting to let markets work and do their thing because that ends up meaning we have better resource allocation. It means that people are better able to get the things that they need and appreciate. Um, so even some of these recent supply chain disruptions that we're seeing, we're, we're, we're seeing prices um, really changing from what they normally were um, to reflect the fact that there's a shortage of this. Um, so letting these mechanisms work is something that, that ETF I think, really, really exemplify. So the question for me is, uh, and this can be just expanded to even just broader than just ETFs, but, you know, what other accomplishments do you hope to achieve while you're still at the SEC? Uh, Are there any rulemakings that we'd like to get out or anything uh, to that nature? Uh, I I guess my question is just, what are your further goals? Sure. I I would like to continue to push on... um, making the agency more welcoming to innovation, whether that's through the creation of an office of innovation or just through better mechanisms for allowing innovative products to get through. Um, I think we do need to spend some time on, on some issues that have languished for a long time for, for years. Um, 
that includes a rule for a modernized rule for transfer agents. It includes a regime for finders who help to match investors with with companies that need capital. So those are some of the things that that I hope to achieve. I think we will also have just a lot of work coming out of this crisis, and, and as I've mentioned already, in analyzing what's happened. So I think that will will um, affect some of what we're doing. And then we have we have a number of ongoing rulemaking projects. I've been involved in standing up the regime for security-based swaps, and so I'd like to see progress on um, on getting the rules are in place, but but the the implementation process is ongoing now. So that's another area in which I'd like to be involved. Um, re- record keeping rules for broker dealers are really outdated. So I'd like to see those get updated. So a lot of, um, a lot of uh, just kind of routine things, but important things. And then some, some more interesting ones, like trying to finish up a new draft of my safe Harbor idea for um for crypto, which is something that um, that I put out a few months ago, and I'd like to, I've gotten a lot of feedback, and I'd like to to think about putting out a second version of that. Okay, Commissioner, I have a final question for you, and it's one that we we ask many people who get to come on Trillions, which is, and, and you're actually unique because you get to see the things that are in the market, but also a number of things that don't make it to market. What is your favorite ETF ticker? I am not going to answer that question as a regulator. I cannot <laughs> answer that question. But if I yep. were, you know, if if I were making an ETF picker now, I guess it would have to be something related to toilet paper. So PP or something like that, right? That yeah, the there's a few two-letter tickers. Well, you gave me an idea, which was CCC. Uh, COVID, oh, cannabis. Oh, yes, right. Of course. Oh. <laughs> of course. Right. I that thing would, that's not a bad idea. That would fly off the shelves. <laughs> Commissioner, I just want, on behalf of Eric and Nathan and myself, um, thank you so much for being on Trillions today. Well, it's been a lot of fun and I appreciate all your time. Thanks for listening to Trillions. Until next time, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, Bloomberg.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you like to listen. We'd love to hear from you. We're on Twitter. I'm at Joel Weber Show. He's at Eric Balchunas. You can find Nathan at Nathan Dean DC. And you can find Commissioner Hester Purse at Hester Purse, P-E-I-R-C-E. This episode of Trillions was produced by Magnus Hendrickson. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to help realize a mission to Mars. Become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at AmericanExpress.com slash Business Gold Card.